0: Hello, story Fam! Welcome back to the Story Podcast. I am Harris Third, and I am so excited because we are kicking off another chapter in our storytelling type series. But before we get there, first, I have to take a moment to check in to ensure that you have your ticket to Story 2022. It's coming up in just a few short months on September 22nd and 23rd, and you have two ways to attend. You can join us in person, in Nashville at the beautiful Skirmerhorn Symphony Center for a truly immersive experience like no other conference that you have ever attended. Or you can join us online for what will still be a truly interactive experience like no other virtual event that you have ever attended. You don't wanna miss this, but don't take my word for it. Head over to story2022.com, read through some of the amazing experiences shared by others. And make the decision to register alongside of other amazing storytellers from organizations like Apple, Google, Disney, Nike, Cirque du Soleil, and some of the most prestigious nonprofit organizations in the world, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to even NASA. Amazing storytellers are in this space, and you want to be there. The cost of registration goes up soon by 100 bucks, so don't wait to grab your ticket. Again, head over to story2022.com and register now. Our theme this year for Story 2022 was inspired by a line from the classic film Hook, where Wendy says to Peter, oh, Peter, don't you know who you are? That's a powerful question, isn't it? Don't you know who you are? But we didn't want to wait until September to begin asking that question. So our team worked really hard on what we feel like is a great place to begin a free assessment that reveals your storytelling type, why you are so drawn to the power of story. And we've been exploring the five types here on the podcast this season there is the amplifier, the artisan, the investigator, the connector, and the revolutionary. Now we all have each of these five types in us. How you tell stories and express yourself can be found in each of these five types. But there is one type that is your dominant type and how you primarily tell stories. This episode is the official kickoff of our next type, the investigator. And I'm excited to expand your understanding of this type and how their skills are integral to understanding how we make sense of the world around us and tell those stories. Investigators are an important and essential part of the storytelling process because they provide the data, the research, the facts that help give stories the depth and roots necessary for momentum to be achieved. They're the ones that are able to comb through the spreadsheet and find the story. They're so talented, and though they are anchored in analytics and statistics because that's how they find the truths to their work, they're also logical, innovative, adaptable, calculated – creative. They're always in pursuit of truth. Now, I don't know about you, but as a storyteller and as a creator, I actually struggle sometimes with this sort of tactile linear approach to telling stories. And I think investigators are often overlooked as storytellers. They're absolutely some of the most creative people I know. But because of this awareness that I have of my own weaknesses, I have to constantly work to surround myself with people like investigators who do understand the details and how to implement them who are able to open up the spreadsheets dig into the data and find the story that is revealing itself to them one such investigator that i've learned so much from over the years is my friend david paul he combines storytelling and behavioral science to help craft test and refine stories and content he is the founder of dial smith and lillian labs He is so talented. He does amazing work. He's a super fascinating guy. And a few years back, I got to sit down with him to break down just what his job entails and why it matters in the context of storytelling. And let me just say, it was brilliant and thoughtful. He has a way of understanding not just stories as we know them, but why they have the impact they have on a waiting world. He's one of the most practical storytellers I know because he really knows how to move the needle at making a story matter let's listen in
1: let's let's start with just the word storyteller because first of all tell me what that word means to you because i think a lot of people who use phrases like behavioral science um you know that feels that feels a little bit too analytical and then the word storyteller feels a little bit artistic how do you how do you juxtapose those two words together
2: yeah, um well that that is an interesting question. I think that all effective storytellers whether they know it or not are deploying um behavioral science principles in the stories that they're crafting. They just don't know it. They can't put a they don't put a label on it. They may not have the education in it. Um it's the behavioral science researchers who have really reverse engineered the most successful stories and the way people make decisions. And they have been able to put labels on what it is that storytellers, um, already do. And even if the story is just for fun, even if it's just a fairy tale to tell your, your kid as they go to bed, um, all of these stories are built on these principles that are designed to take people on a particular ride or a particular journey. Um, yeah, but it's just not always necessarily, uh, you know, labeled that way.
1: And so good. Yeah. I remember at the conference this past year story 2018, you gave this really incredible talk and at the beginning of the talk, you led by telling two different stories in two different ways. I guess you could argue that one of them wasn't even a story, um, for those who weren't there kind of walk us through what you did and why.
2: Uh, yeah absolutely so yeah that, that's exactly what I did um there There were two versions of a of a pretty um, emotional but fact based story. Um, uh, related to healthcare, and it was a story about a friend of mine who's been uh, battling cancer and, and um, uh, actually got sepsis, which is a blood infection, um, while his immune system was compromised during chemotherapy. Uh, I'll cut to the, the end of the story that he's doing very well now, and it was a true story, but um, we worked together. He's back at work. He's doing great. Uh, so, I, I don't want the whole story to be a bummer, but um, we specifically used that story because I wanted to put people in a place where they would have an emotional reaction to what I was talking about and they would react to both versions of the story differently. So one version of the story was very fact-based, where I told a lot of facts and figures about the percentages of people who contract this disease or this condition, and what the survival rate is, and how much money it costs for pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs to combat these things. So it was matter-of-fact, not full of a whole lot of emotion. Uh, and then the second story, I told it as a narrative about a friend of mine who had this condition and what he's gone through and how if we didn't have the, the modern health care that we have today, uh, he may not be around today. And so people connect with that type of story. On a much deeper level, they just don't necessarily know why. So then what we did is um, I unveiled the four behavioral science principles that I had deliberately baked into that narrative story. And we demonstrated um, exactly what phrases I used in order to tap into those. So I won't go through them them all here. We actually do have a recording of the talk online if anyone wants to see the whole thing. But um, for instance, we used one called the self-reference effect, which in behavioral science relates to um, the fact that you are much more likely to relate to a story if you believe that that story in some way relates back to you. So I started that narrative story with, uh, you know, you may have someone in your life who, or if you're like me, you've also been through X. And that immediately primes you out of the gate for the fact that, hey, this might be relevant to me. Instead of me just launching in talking about cancer or sepsis or expensive drugs that you may have no relation to at all. Uh, so there are a whole host of those, what are called cognitive biases, um, that, that you can, you can work, you know, that that's how people are predisposed to receive information, perceive it and make decisions. Uh, so you can then craft stories using those to help, uh, influence the way, uh, the way those are going to resonate with people.
1: Man, it's so good. Can you give us a second one?
2: Um, yeah, so a second one, let's see, we talked about self-reference effect. And then, uh, oh, another one we talked about in there in that same talk was one that's called loss aversion. Uh, this is an interesting one, because there, there, there's been research done that um, has proven that the way you will feel about a loss is twice as acute as you would about a similar gain. And the example, um, the example I used in the story, the second example to prove out my story uh, was if I gave you $1,000, you would love me. But if I took $1,000 from you, you'd not only hate me, but you would feel the loss of that $1,000 twice as acutely as the gain. Um, So that that's used in political messaging wow. all the time, where you'll hear constant talking about how this political group is going to take this from you. And if you elect this person, you're going to lose something. And it's tapping into that, that loss aversion, which is so much more powerful than saying, if you elect me, I'm going to give this to you. It's way more powerful to say, if you elect the other person, they're going to take this from you.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't want to spend this entire podcast talking about politics, but <laughs> it seems so timely right now. Yeah. Um, knowing what you know based on your vocation and your line of work, um, how, how do we choose a different narrative for the sake of a nation when we have people like you who are experts saying that this works better? Are there times where you just go, I'm going to ignore the science just for the sake of being a better human being? How do you struggle with that tension?
2: Um, Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm in the fortunate position that um, I get to pick and choose who I work for. Um, So for myself um, and our company, we only put ourselves in a position – uh, to, to help develop effective messaging for those that, that we want to work with um, and that we believe in, or at least most importantly, that we don't flat out not believe in. Uh, we certainly appreciate different points of view, and we know that our point of view isn't always right, but there are also some really extreme ones right now that just as an organization we've, we've chosen that, that we don't want to be a part of. So as we're going through our work, We really do try to find a genuine way to craft a message or a story or content that will get the point across in a very, in a genuine way, in a non manipulative way. Um, and to use all of these biases that we know of, as we said earlier, for good and not for evil, um, you know, loss aversion is, uh, I'll give you another example of one that's very common. It's called framing. And if anyone listening to this has heard of any of these, they've heard of framing. It's the most common one, the easiest one to understand. And, um, we exemplified that at, at story 2018, Through an experiment we did where we told people a story about the calorie content of food Um, and we were imagining that we were the American Heart Association or some medical group that wanted to uh, influence people to make healthier food choices and to control their weight because of the obesity epidemic in the U.S., um, so one version of the story that we told talked about five food items and the calorie counts of those food items. The second story we told was the same food items, but it was the amount of exercise required to burn off the calories in that food. And we never mentioned the actual calorie count. And so every research participant heard one version or another. This was a, repli- this was a replicant of, a, of another study that had been done in the past many years ago that was very effective. Um, and what we found unsurprisingly was that those who heard the exercise um, narrative were, thought that the food choices were, were much less good. We didn't position it as bad. But the question was, how good of a food choice do you think this item would be when you're watching calories? Um, so we didn't ask whether it's good or bad food or healthy or not healthy food. But, you know, some really healthy foods are also very calorie dense. And, if, and that's all very relevant, too. So we get into those semantics of what, what is the ultimate goal of, of what we're trying to do. If the ultimate goal is to get people to eat healthier, then we might, one of the examples in our study was almonds. We might encourage people to eat more nuts and more almonds because of all the, the great things that are in almonds, the fatty acids and the protein etc. However, nuts are very calorie dense. So if the if our objective as a as a communicator is to get people to watch their calorie intake in order to lose weight, because they're dangerously overweight, then we may not want to put nuts in that particular diet, simply for that particular reason. So I don't want to sound like I'm getting too hung up on, you know, the semantics of whether or not we want people to eat nuts or not, but it it comes down to that level of detail where you have to start with the objective. What do you want to influence people to do? And in that kind of messaging, every phrase and often every word matters. And whether you tell someone that this particular item has 150 calories, which might not sound like a big deal to them, but then we tell them that they have to jog for 45 minutes to burn that off, suddenly they're far less interested in eating that 150 calories that that sounded like no big deal before.
1: Just because of the way the story was framed.
2: Exactly. It's all It's all in framing. And framing is so common that we, we we use it all day, every day. If you pay attention tomorrow to all of the conversations you have in your day and how many of them you are even almost subconsciously making a decision to position something one way versus another to be sure that your customer or colleague or spouse or child will hear it the way you intend it. You'll be amazed at how many times in a day you are you are making framing decisions in your communications.
1: So fascinating, man! <laughs> is there any is there any research out about to kind of go back to that conversation about politics? Is there research about what happens if we choose the better long term approach as opposed to the short term what helps us win approach? Um, like, are there are there any examples that you know of people ignoring the research and they're, of them going, yeah, but let me rephrase that a little bit. You you go to you talk to someone, they're running a political campaign, and they go, well, obviously, research shows that if we do this, we're more likely to win. Is, is there an example of someone saying that is true? No one's denying that, but this is the impact that it has on us as a society in the long term. And there's actually research that shows in the long term, if you choose the higher road or the better path, this is what ends up happening.
2: Mm, so uh, I can't point to a particular study. I would say most likely, yes, it's out there. Um, that I don't have at my fingertips. I can say, though, from experience that um, y- you can generally argue it either way, what you hear going on a lot right now in the in the political discourse. Um, if you look at the amount of negativity that's being used, and if you look at, and I'm not saying this with one political slant or another, but it is simply fact that there are things being said publicly right now in politics that are not true. Um, it's, you know, that's just factual. There's either, there's either accurate or inaccurate. And there are many things being said that are blatantly and knowingly inaccurate, Um, And we've what's interesting about about this current cycle is that we've gotten to the point where there is an entire segment of our population that that has actually decided somehow they don't care about that, whether that's been a conscious decision that they don't care or whether it's happening on some kind of a non-conscious level, Uh, even if they know it's not true they like how it sounds they like how it makes them feel and they like that it's not what the other people are saying and therefore they're okay with it even if it's not factually accurate and that's uh that's a pretty interesting phenomenon um and so th- and there's a lot of language uh, I'll say in this case manipulation that's going on behind the scenes to get people to feel, you know, a certain way, uh, one way or the other.
1: Yeah, for sure. What do you say to the person out there who's thinking while listening to us talk about this? It's like, I, I don't have a political campaign going on. I'm not running an infomercial anytime soon. I just want to make great art and tell great stories like films or finish my book. What yeah. does the world of behavioral science in your work, have to do with their work? How how relevant is it?
2: Yeah, well, that, that's a great question. And that's where, like you said earlier, getting away from the notion of, quote, behavioral science and social psychology and cognitive biases, those don't relate to the the average person trying to do good work, creating art, writing stories, creating content. So, what I want everyone to know is that these principles are all sound. And like I said earlier, you're probably using them more than you thought. Um, but I'll give you an example of another way. You can think about it in your work that's much more approachable to people who haven't studied it. Um, so the name of our company is Engages, And we deliberately came up with that name because we wanted to know what's more engaging than engaging. Right. Like a lot of people have cracked the code on how to make something engaging. And we want to find a way to go a step further beyond engagement to really be able to create a, deliberately create a movement, move people in from one direction to another or toward a particular end. So lately, I've actually been working on trying to come up with a formula for how to make something us. And I'll, uh, you know, since it's just you and me here, I'll go ahead and I'll I'll, I'll test it out on you guys a little bit. And I think it's um, I think it's the kind of thing that can help people as they're crafting stories and crafting content kind of check off the boxes and think, okay, do I have this covered? Do I have this covered? Do I have this covered? And we don't want to take the art out of storytelling by any means, um, you know, but even when you listen to master storytellers who you've crafted stories for Pixar and others, there, you know, there's, there is a, um, uh, Matthew Lund calls it a story spine or there's a, there's a story ladder or there's a framework of some kind. Um, so this, this kind of thing's deployed a lot. So where we're going with the notion of how to be more engaging than engaging, um, a number of elements that I think are essential, um, uh, but that are less quote sciencey, um, Uh, the first one is empathy. So in order to craft a story or a piece of content that's going to connect with someone, um, you first have to know um, what's relevant to that person. What do they want? How do they feel? And most importantly, why? So you have to start from that position of empathy and realize that if you're creating something, you're creating it for an audience. And ultimately, that audience is all that matters. Um, So That's number one. Then the next part of the equation is resonance. And I said to you earlier, we craft, test, and refine um, content that resonates. Uh So you have to be sure that what you're creating is going to connect with that audience and move them toward uh, that desired behavior. So it's how do you then, once you have empathy and you understand what's important to people and why, then how are you going to Package and craft your message and your story and your content in a way that's going to resonate with those people. So, empathy plus resonance, in my opinion, gets you to engaging. That's the formula to creating baseline engaging content. So, the way we go a step further is we add to that equation the notion of a tribe. So, in order for something to go beyond engaging, Uh, You have to take the people you have engaged with, and you then have to make them feel as if they are part of something larger than themselves. And they have to realize, hey, those people are like me, or I'm like those people. And I'm now part of something which is going to make this notion that's been communicated to me register with me on such a deeper level. So you have empathy plus resonance plus tribe gets you very close to what I call being engages. And then you multiply all of that. The final piece of the equation is by word of mouth. Because for something to truly be at that level of engagement, you not only want to influence the person or audience that's your target, but you then want to give them the incentive and even the tools to then spread that message to their circles of influence. So I call it word of mouth to the nth degree or W-O-M to the nth, where that then becomes the potential there is infinite uh, you don't you know people it's it's the whole and so on and so on and so on it just keeps growing and growing and growing when you get that when you get that formula right so when we sit down now to help clients work on messages and content and stories we're starting to apply it against this formula of empathy plus resonance plus a tribe times word of mouth to the nth degree is what will then take you to this new level of engaging content um, that then, when you're just focusing on pure engagement would, would likely stop short. I have no idea how that sounds to you or how that's going to resonate with people. It's a little <laughs> bit of what's been rattling around in my, in my brain lately, and we do a lot of experimenting with things here. So I'm just kind of tossing it out there early and, and we'll see how it sits with people.
1: Yeah, I like it. I mean, there's always tension around this, I think, right? Because you know, if I'm honest, um, I always feel tension with the word formula. I I think it's the artist in me. Mm -hmm. The artist in me is like formulas, like, no, uh, that makes it seem like anyone can do this. And so there's this weird, you know, I just feel like, yes, everyone can be a storyteller and no, not everyone can win an Oscar Mm -hmm. because there's an art to it. So it's, you know, I, I don't even know that I have found a way to resolve that tension, even in my own life and my own work. And even as I have dedicated so much of my life to inspiring other people to recognize that they are storytellers, that we're all storytellers, and that we all have the ability to be better storytellers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think frameworks are great. They're super helpful. And I think that's a great one. Um, I think it's, yeah. it's when when I hear the formula, then I start getting like, oh, no, hmm. oh, are we stripping story of its magic? Because stories feel like these living, breathing things, and yeah, you know,
2: well, and you know, I'm glad I, I, that you mentioned it, and that's that's one of the advantages of just kind of flying without a net here and and tossing something out early. Uh, from your perspective, it's very helpful for me to hear that in your world, you know, formula is an F word um, that really <laughs> needs to be avoided, but yet framework is a good is a good F word because. To, to your point, not, um, everyone can be a storyteller, but it's, it's intimidating to so many people that if you can give them a framework within which they can craft their art, uh, it's so much less intimidating than if you just say, go make art. Um, and that's where I think these, these frameworks, I agree with you can, can certainly be helpful, but, um, uh, from, from here forth, I am forever retiring the word formula.
1: <laughs> I don't think you have to, man. I'm not the expert. You are no, way more experienced I, in this than I am.
2: No, man, you I, sold me on that. I, I hate it now. <laughs> I'm not saying it ever again.
1: <laughs> I think. Uh, I think maybe maybe some of the tension is the fact that when we follow formulas, things become fairly predictable. Because once you know the formula, you know how things pan out. And I think you can follow a framework and still surprise people. You can follow a framework and still remain mysterious. You can follow a framework and something can still be magical. Um, Formulas kind of strip something of its magic and turn it from art into science. Um, And there's nothing wrong with science. Obviously, like, much of your work has been involved in understanding behavioral science. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I think makes you a great storyteller is not just your understanding of science, but how you take your knowledge and training Um, in that field and apply it to making great art and telling great stories.
2: Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. And I I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, You know, the also the notion of a formula doesn't leave room, doesn't leave room for play for experimentation. You know, in science, a formula is a very specific thing, either you follow it, or you don't. Um, whereas within a framework, you have a lot of latitude to stay within the general boundaries, but within that, uh, really make it your own. So, uh, I had, hadn't thought about it specifically before, but, uh, it's crystal clear. It makes a lot of sense.
1: You know, what's interesting about this conversation we're having right now is I guess that this is the work that you do, right? Is, is, you know, there's people out there who have very helpful frameworks to me and the moment they use the word formula. Um I'm just like Oh i don't I probably you know wouldn't want to continue learning from this person yeah. and isn't that isn't that the work that you're in is is identifying the fact that hey you may have some really great things to say or a product that can legitimately transform your life, but sometimes you're just using the wrong words
2: well, so that's that I where I, yeah, that's where I said earlier it comes down to a single word I mean imagine that Imagine that I were crafting a storytelling package that I wanted to sell. And I'm not, by the way. But imagine that I were, and something showed up in your inbox, and you thought to yourself, all right, I'm in this business. Let, you know, let's see what this guy has to talk about. As soon as I use the word formula anywhere in that copy, you're done. You're out. No matter how good it is, you personally have that particular feeling. So when we do our work, we don't, we don't guess Um, And in this, this is a perfect example of where if I were guessing, I'd be wrong. And I know that, which is why we never, we never guess what we think doesn't matter. It's only what our audience thinks that matters. But we also don't just listen to one person. Um, Our research work involves, uh, you know, tens to dozens to sometimes hundreds of people, so that we can validate uh, you know, these ideas. And if out of that work, as we're talking to artists and creators and writers, it starts to bubble up that, hey, you've got this word formula peppered in this copy two and three times. And and here's why that doesn't resonate with me. That's a golden moment for us. That's what we call that a moment of truth in, in our company, um, where we realize, oh, thank goodness, we found it, at least one, um, that's going to that's gonna make a critical difference. So uh, yeah, this is... Um, this would be akin to what we call an IDI or an in-depth interview, a one-on-one interview, where I'm talking to you about an idea, which I did, and you're giving me feedback on it, which you did. Um, and that, that's, that's one way that we do our work every day.
0: I always love learning from David. I find everything that he does, if you can't tell by my enthusiasm at the beginning of this episode, uh, just incredibly fascinating. So much thought and intention is put into how he approaches storytelling. I think it's rare, honestly, and it's something that every person listening right now could benefit from if they would take the time to implement. Please make sure you reach out, get to know David. It's David Paul. He spells his last name with two L's, P-A-U-L-L. Look him up online he's a great follow on any platform that you are present on He's just an all-around really great guy and for all of our investigators out there listening i hope that you hear david in my conversation and that you're energized by it we value the role that you play in the world and the stories that you tell you are a storyteller it's easy to be sidelined in your work because it feels really heady or overly logical But how you see the world and the stories that need to be told is integral to how every person can see and meet others exactly where they're at instead of just throwing darts in the dark i so appreciate your creativity over the next few weeks we'll we'll be unpacking this storytelling type even more with another incredible story roundtable and you're going to get to listen in on some of the highlights of that convo right here on the podcast so stay tuned If you haven't joined one of our roundtable events yet, you should, you can learn more at storygatherings.com slash round dash table. That's storygatherings.com slash round dash table. Head over there to learn more. We've been doing them monthly. It's an entirely free event, but space is limited. So you do have to register, go check that out. And if you haven't taken the free assessment yet to identify your dominant storytelling type, be sure to do that over at storygatherings.com. It's quick and simple, and it's an incredible asset, not just for us and how we can serve you better uh, and more intentionally by getting you the right resources, but it helps you understand the core motivations behind your work. And so make sure you do that. Again, storygatherings.com. As always, we appreciate your feedback. Keep those ratings and reviews coming in if you haven't already, and I hope that you'll continue to follow along. So be sure to subscribe to the story podcast if you haven't done that so you don't miss a single episode. All right, that's it for now. I'm Harris III. I am forever grateful and honored to serve this amazing community. I hope you'll plan to join us for Story 2022 this September, either in person in Nashville or online. In the meantime, please keep telling stories that matter. The Story Podcast is a production of the Astoria Collective. It is hosted and curated by Harris III and produced, edited, and mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Studios. All music is provided by the talented musicians at Soundstripe. For more information about this podcast and other creative offerings from Story, visit StoryGatherings.com.